Let me now ask you all to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And I'm actually going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin at verse 4 and read to verse 10. And I remind you that this is God's holy word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks be to God, this is his holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads now together and pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask you to please take this portion of your holy word by your spirit and according to the abundance of your grace to direct this word into our hearts and into our minds and Father, to cause it to bear much fruit in our lives. And we ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to begin right off the bat by asking you all a question. And the question is this, who do you understand yourself to be as a believer in Jesus? By that I mean, how do you perceive your identity as a Christian? Maybe another way to think about it would be to ask yourself, how would you introduce yourself to someone else if you were not allowed to use your proper name or to say anything about your profession? What, what statuses or descriptions or metaphors or, or titles from God's Word would, would you take from the Bible to describe yourself? And as a result, to describe what your purpose or, or your frun function from God is in this present world. I believe these are crucial questions for us because we're followers of Jesus who live in an increasingly hostile culture to the faith which we profess. And these are also quite crucial questions for us in, in shaping the way that we live out our faith every day in Jesus. You see, all of us in human society, we, we have a status. We actually have more than one status. We typically have what is called a status set, which is simply a fancy way of saying that, that we have a set of identities or roles in this present world. 
Some of you are mothers, some of you are fathers, you are, you are brothers or sisters, you are sons or daughters, husbands, wives, you, you are in your professions, are doctors, lawyers, teachers, carpenters, IT specialists, artists, writers, firefighters, and so on. You see, each of us, we have more than one status, and we use our statuses in our, in our thinking, in our identifying, in order to shape our daily lives and, and to uh, identify ourselves to those whom we interact with. We also assume these roles or statuses as we engage with the functions that are associated with being in those statuses. We can recognize a doctor or a registered nurse or an RPN or a dentist, not only by the title in front of their name, but also according to you know, what it is we see them do. That is how they function or at, at times fail to function. The things that they do in keeping their status in human society. Now you might wonder why I went down that rabbit trail. It's, it's because... The Word of God clearly reveals that you and I, if we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ, that we, in fact, have received for ourselves a new status set. We have received new roles to fulfill and new functions as God's redeemed people. The Bible describes our new identities or statuses in many ways that that a lot of us are already familiar with. I mean, perhaps you already assume some of these statuses as you think about who you are as a believer in Jesus. Maybe you think about yourself as an adopted child of God, and so you are. Perhaps you tend to describe yourself as a co-heir with Christ in the imperishable inheritance of the inexhaustible riches of God, and so you are. Perhaps you more readily identify with the many places in Scripture in which we as the people of faith are described as the sheep being nurtured by the good shepherd or as the bondservants of God in Jesus Christ. And again, so you are. Both the sheep of God's pasture as well as the household servants of the Lord Most High. It's truly an incredible thing that that Jesus has done for you and for me. And and all of these absolutely amazing, transformative, defining statuses we enjoy because of the finished work of Jesus. But as I draw your attention today to the passage here in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, we see that, that there the apostle identifies each of us who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb in, in ways that perhaps we do not often use to describe ourselves. Perhaps these are rather strange terms to our ears when we think about them as defining and understanding who and what we have been redeemed to be and to do. Today, many of us engage with this part of God's Word, and, and as we do this, we, we ask in faith for God to use His grace to work within us by His Spirit so that our self-understanding can be expanded, so that our identification of who we are in Jesus and, and what that then entails we are to do, 
will be challenged, will be expanded and, and enhanced for the glory of God and for the building of his kingdom. The inspired Apostle Peter begins in this part of his pastoral letter precisely where we ought to begin in our own self-examination, which is in fact not with ourselves, but with Jesus, our Savior. And so the Apostle Peter begins with a very simple truth about who Jesus is. Peter does this because our identities and our statuses, our roles in this creation, never begin with us. They begin with the person and the identities and the statuses of Christ and Christ alone. For Jesus is the very source and the wellspring of our salvation. He is the very basis for the identities that you and I now enjoy through faith in Him. It is through the Lord Jesus that you and I can call ourselves born-again Christians. So how does Peter describe the Lord Jesus here? In verse 4, he reveals Jesus, as of all things, a living stone. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like a rather odd sort of identification, a rather unusual metaphor for someone who we know is our flesh and blood and divine Savior. Rather strange way to describe the Lord of glory. But yet we not only find that kind of description of Jesus here, we find the description repeated and expanded in the rest of the text. It continues in verses 6, 7, and 8, in which our Lord is portrayed as a cornerstone, as a stone of stumbling, and as a rock of offense. Notice that God describes this cornerstone here as chosen and precious. And yet, oddly enough, the stone that in the end was, was looked upon with disdain was rejected by the builders, rejected, in fact, by many people in general, according to verse 4. In this identification of Jesus, of course, we, we see that, that He is very much the basis for everything that God is doing. We understand that Jesus is the author and the founder of our faith, but here Peter sees him as, as the cornerstone, the very essential beginning of everything that God is doing in the salvation of His people. Now again, we think of the usual metaphors the usual identifications and, and titles we find in Scripture for God's only begotten Son. It's easy for us if we're asked to give a list to think of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, Jesus as the Fruitful Vine, Jesus as the Living Way, Jesus as the Resurrection, and so on. And yet here the Apostle Peter is moved of God to describe the Lord Jesus as something we would identify as strictly architectural. Something that has the purpose or function of, of the starting of a building project. You know, nowadays cornerstones are something that's a bit more ceremonial. We, we put one in at the medical clinic that you helped us to build. And it has that passage from the book of Ephesians in which Jesus is described as the chief cornerstone. 
Very beautiful thing, but, but you see that cornerstone was necessary to convey a testimony about Jesus. It wasn't necessary really for the structure of the building. But in the days of the Bible, and really up until very recent times, the cornerstone is the essential piece for the whole building. Everything else, all of the blocks that are put on after that cornerstone, you know, they're aligned with that cornerstone in both directions. It provides the basis, it provides the structure, it, it supports the whole of the building. Now, surprisingly enough, according to the Apostle Peter, this cornerstone given by God was something that was foretold long before by the prophet Isaiah. He foretold it 700 years before Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Isaiah the prophet saw this building of which Peter declares that Jesus is the cornerstone, the very basis and foundation and Jesus is the basis and foundation of not any kind of mere sort of physical building. He is the basis and foundation of the living spiritual temple of God. And this brings us to the second main truth here that Peter expounds in the text. And that has to do with what Jesus is now doing. According to verse 5, Jesus is building this spiritual house. He's engaged in creating this incredible temple for God as an amazing and as, and as unbelievable as it might sound at first. Jesus is building God's spiritual house. And the thing is, He's not building it with lifeless rock and concrete mortar. He's not creating, you know, a physical, visible edifice, even like this beautiful church here in which we are worshiping. No, the Lord Jesus is building this grand and glorious, unstoppable temple of God by using living stones. Now, this is where things really get astounding for those of us who who have been saved by grace and are now in Jesus. Even as Isaiah foretold and Peter declares in verse 6, whoever believes in Him, that is Jesus, the cornerstone, will not be put to shame. Things get really astounding here in 1 Peter 2 when we read that it is that Jesus is about both then and now in building His temple through you and through me. Because you see, part of our new identities in Jesus are to be the living stones of God. And that brings us to the third point in which Peter declares who we are now because of what Jesus has done. I know it's not unusual. We often talk in the church about identifying ourselves according to Jesus and His death on the cross to save us from sin. We typically, though, more often identify as God's children, as those who've been adopted into God's family. Perhaps we think of ourselves as sinners who've been saved by grace. And yes, we are all those things. But here Peter connects us as children of God directly to the person and work that Jesus is doing using yet another architectural metaphor. 
If Jesus is the chief cornerstone, if he is the basis and the measure and the support on which the kingdom of God now rests, as his glorious temple is erected, then you and I and all who have been born again, all who have believed and rested upon Jesus, the cornerstone, we are in fact his living stones. We're living stones just as Christ himself is identified here in verse 4. Jesus is building us up to this very day into the very spiritual temple of God. Each of us, you and I, if we are in Christ, are part of the spiritual structure. We are built into this very messianic kingdom masonry that is structurally the dwelling place of the presence of God. And all of it again is resting upon the chosen and precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. But this isn't all that we are, brothers and sisters, in in terms of our born-again identities and statuses because of who Jesus is and because of what He has done and what He continues to do. Peter continues here in the text. He is inspired to see that since each of us is an essential part of the spiritual temple of God, resting upon Jesus, the cornerstone, since we have been set apart and called unto God, He also identifies us here and gives to us the statuses of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people belonging wholly unto God. Now, these again are amazing statuses. Perhaps they're statuses that that you and I have not considered when we thought about what is our identity now in Christ. But according to 1 Peter chapter 2, those are part of our identities as born again believers in Jesus. And actually, although we don't hear these statuses very often applied to Christians, they're, they're, they're not new. To the, to the New Testament or to the Apostle Peter. The Lord, back in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, He thundered from high atop that mountain as He spoke to His covenant people Israel, and He described them as His treasured possession, that they would be to Him a royal priesthood and a holy nation. God identified His people Israel as His priestly and holy nation, that they might reach out to the other nations of the earth. The the key status identification or title in all of this, whether we're looking at it as applied to Israel in the Old Testament or whether we're looking at it as the way Peter is applying it to God's people, the church, is this status, this this role, this identification of priest. And so we do well to think about what it is and what it means to have the status and the title and the function of a priest. And you think about what a priest does. A priest has what we might call Godward or vertical calling and purpose. That means that the priest can draw near to the presence of God, has a special and hallowed access. The priest of God would naturally be in love with Yahweh, the God of Israel, would naturally love the things of God, would would love to engage in leading in 
in the worship of God. And then when that worship concluded and he came out of the temple, that priest would be engaged in living a life that so clearly demonstrated the power of God that others would be drawn to him like, you know, moths to a flame. But then there's also that horizontal element of identity and function. That is, as we've even heard earlier in the service today, the the exercise of of justice and and mercy and compassion and grace. And then there's the teaching of the law that the priest would engage in teaching the things of God to others. There was the declaration of the blessings and the curses of God. And then Believe it or not, throughout the Old Testament, there was a calling of God on the priests to to be those who would welcome strangers and sojourners, who would have compassion and mercy upon them, and not only that, but, but who would integrate them into the people of God. Now, we know that as the Old Testament nation of Israel received that calling and that status and those functions, that that it was for a brief time. Within 40 days of the sealing of that covenant at Mount Sinai, Israel utterly failed as God's priestly people when they worshiped the golden calf. And, And even as the Lord gave to them a priestly caste, that they could look to to see how it was they were supposed to live as a a priestly nation. We find as we read the rest of our Old Testaments that the nation became more and more dysfunctional, more and more unholy instead of holy, less and less priestly. And so, it was necessary for God our Father to send Jesus Christ His Son to come as our great high priest and to possess a priesthood so far greater than that Israelite priesthood of Aaron as the book of Hebrews so wonderfully declares. It is because of Jesus and His priestly sacrifice that by God's grace you and I now have the ability to be these living stones, to be God's holy priesthood and His chosen race, to participate in being built by Jesus into the spiritual temple of God. You see, what Israel failed to fulfill, Christ has perfectly completed. And because of that, in Christ, you and I now enjoy the status of of priests unto God. The priesthood of all believers as our Reformation forefathers described it. And so we have the privilege of those statuses, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But you see, with those statuses come also functions. I marvel as I consider the history of our Reformed faith that that we have so readily taken a hold of this idea that you and I are priests of God and a holy nation. And it is a wonderful thing that our forefathers in the faith came to understand that, that that the the Word of God had that kind of impact on them and, and they passed that along to us. But you see, what I often find too is that in our Reformed understanding, we're far too content to sit in our pews or to kneel in our prayer closets and celebrate our access to God, to celebrate our status and our identity because of what Jesus has done, and we should celebrate those, but at the same time to neglect the functions 
of being God's priests here on the earth. We have great and glorious responsibilities as the priests of God. And and Peter deals with that here in the text. The last point is he describes here for us what it is that you and I are supposed to be doing as the priests of God. What does Peter say here? He says that we're being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, but you see, there's a purpose there that he underlines for us in two different places. In verse five, he says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse nine, so that we may declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, we need to wrestle here as we engage with this text with with how we function, what it is we do as the holy and royal priesthood of God. Because you see, that's a direct response to the mercy we have so lavishly received in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, if we have truly been accepted into the family of God, if you and I, by God's grace, have accepted the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, rather than rejecting Him, if we have genuinely received the priceless tokens of His great mercy, then you and I are now today, in fact, as you sit here, as we are gathered here, we are in fact priests of God in Christ, each and every one of us. And so we have priestly functions to fulfill. At the risk of violating what I was trained to do in seminary, which is never to introduce another text near the end of a sermon, I want you to look at one more text with me, which is in Revelation chapter 5. And I want to read to you verses 9 and 10 because they directly relate to 1 Peter 2. In this great heavenly scene of worship, in which the Lord Jesus Christ is presented for us as the Lamb who was slain, but who lives forevermore, the only one worthy to receive all authority in heaven and on earth, we read that there is a new song of worship being sung, beginning in verse 9, and it goes like this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Apostle John, much like the Apostle Peter, was inspired to see that Jesus has saved us through his own priestly sacrificial offering of his own blood. He has offered that up in the most holy of places. He has done that to purchase us, but he has done so for a grand kingdom purpose, to call each of us to be his kingdom and priests in order to reign on the earth. Brothers and sisters, this revelation of God today for us from 1 Peter 2 and from Revelation 5 will by the grace of God expand and enhance not only how we identify ourselves in Christ Jesus, how it is that we think about our identity in God's salvation, but also how we exercise that identity, how we function 
as the priestly people of God. It is this revelation of the holy priesthood of everyone who has been born again in Jesus from every tribe and language and people and nation that that is the driving force behind our purposeful pursuit of Jesus' great commission. It is this picture painted by God that every one of us, despite our ethnicity, our economic resources, or anything else you might care to name, are in fact being built up into God's spiritual temple. That's what drives our commitment to our brothers and sisters in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, in China, Myanmar, and all over the earth. And it is God's visionary and powerful priestly purposes for us as His royal priesthood that we are challenged every day to truly function as priests of God. To function as those who love worship, who serve and draw near to God, but also who share the love, the the knowledge, the resources, the grace of God with others, who seek priestly, Christ-centered justice, mercy, and who desire to incorporate sojourning souls into the spiritual temple of God. Our priesthood from God in Christ is not only a calling, brothers and sisters, not only something that enables us to draw near to God, not only something that even enables us to engage in mission, although it includes all of those things, It is also a call for living out daily, holistically, priestly lives. Living as priests of God in that that sort of vertical way toward God, but also living out priestly lives in that horizontal way. Living out priestly lives toward all our neighbors as well. May God supply us according to His grace. May He renew us and work within us according to His mercy. And may He now equip all of us to identify and to live as the priestly people of God. Let's bow our heads now together and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for this part of Your holy and Your majestic Word. We thank You for all of the things that You have done for us in Christ, none of it that we have done for ourselves. But we also thank You, Father, that because of what Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done, You have called us to be Your kingdom of priests and holy nation here on the earth. Father, help us to truly embrace the reality and and the impact and the importance of that, to rejoice in it, to thank You for it, but also, Father, to live it out that others may see in us and experience from us by Your grace, Your justice, Your mercy, Your compassion, Your love, and the free and true offer of salvation through your gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.